Welcome to Social Mental Health. Social Mental Health is a bi-monthly podcast that explores the social stigmas and other barriers to receiving proper mental health care. The stories told here are honest, lived experiences. We will be dealing with tough subjects like self-harm, suicidal ideation, and prejudices. It is my hope that in exploring these stories, it inspires others to combat the social stigmas and barriers to mental health. I am Janet Peavy, and I thank you for your attention. Hi. We're talking here today with Ellen Riley, and just as a preface, Ellen is my first cousin, and several years ago, she lost her dear son to suicide, and it was devastating for all of us, but Ellen has been a warrior in this space since that time, and advocating for the rights of mental health and being kind to other people. So I would love for Ellen to share her experiences and her insight here with us, um, because I think it's a rather unique one in the mental health space. So welcome, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to interview me. I appreciate it. Of course. So with um, your son, Aiden, who, you know, we all miss so very much, what when did you first start noticing that things were, um, when did you first start feeling concerned about him? Right. Well, I think, um, I've had to come to some different conclusions around mental health, Mm -hmm. um, based on our personal experiences. I think there's a lot of, um, Oh, what do I want to say? Assumptions about, um, it being some sort of ongoing, long-standing situation, and oftentimes mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. But I think that there's also um, a mental health. There are mental health situations in which it's a quick onset related to a specific situation, something like that. So um, mm-hmm. for a while, um, I did not necessarily speak about my son's suicide and mental health in relation to one another, because our situation is a little bit different than some mm-hmm. in that we have some very specific situations that um, led to his eventual death by suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I think that it's, I, I have, I know in my mom's heart, but also just as a person who works with kids, I'm an educator. Mm-hmm. And as a person in the human race, it's, it's human instinct to want to stay alive. So mm-hmm. if that instinct is overridden, that is a mental health issue, like something, something short circuited, something, um, what was not working the way it was supposed to, if that makes sense. And that can be a snapshot one mm-hmm. moment or it can be ongoing. And so either way <laughs> it is, I think a mental health issue. Um, I will say that um, <clears throat> we had, we had several incidents and I can talk about those or not. Um, mm-hmm. But I also um, will say that we did find kind of an informal note on my son's phone in his mm-hmm. notes section that said this particular incident led to a deep depression that I couldn't find my way out of. So in his own words, he's telling us about his mental health issue. Um, We knew that he was feeling that low and we tried to advocate in several different arenas and we came up kind of with roadblock after roadblock. And mostly what we found is that people 
in positions of power were not well informed enough to understand how their actions were detrimental to a young child. He was he was 14 at the time of his death. So um, I think there's a lot of misinformation about d- brain development um, and what children at that age can understand and properly process, if that makes sense. Absolutely. In fact, that's kind of what the purpose behind this podcast is. I Mm -hmm. deliberately picked social mental health because of the contrast between the two. You have mental health that's encouraging all this privacy and secrecy, which is where those dark thoughts live. Right. Um, And you have all this misinformation. And then on the social aspect, the way you get better is connecting with other people. Right. And that creates a really tough contrast. And particularly, I think, for teenagers to understand what's going on. There's so much misinformation out there. It's not like breaking your arm or falling down. There's no clear roadmap. Right. And there's a dearth of information if you're not a family that's directly involved in this journey. You just, these are a lot of things that people just don't know about. Well, and I think that's something you and I both have discovered is that... You know, I can look back and say, I wish I'd done X differently, or I wish I'd handled this differently, but I didn't know. And there's still a lot of things I don't know. And um, people now come to us as resources Mm -hmm. um, because we've been open Mm -hmm. about Aiden's death and and, and kind of what he struggled with. Uh And I I feel ill-equipped to help them because, I mean, I know this is not how anyone no one makes me feel this way, but I look at myself like, well, I failed in navigating this situation. My son is gone. And so when people come to me, that tells me how desperate they are to get something, anything, because I, I, I don't know, I don't feel like I should be a resource. And yet just being open makes me one, if that makes sense. And you said something earlier too, that, um, I think is a really important piece that we are missing, Mm -hmm. which is that connecting with other people is um, so vital. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this, this shame and this shadow um, protection around mental health issues Mm -hmm. is really, really harmful. Um, I I read somewhere that um, connection is our biggest protection against suicide. Um, Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really, you know, connection for protection is, was yeah. a really big, um, that was a light bulb for me mm-hmm. um, because my son was going through several things that left him isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was actually technology um, mm. and technology is a big piece of mental health, right? And um, right. how it's harmful, but also how it could be helpful. There's lots of pieces there. Mm-hmm. Um for my son, he made a stupid technology mistake at, at 13 and mm-hmm. um, the other family, instead of connecting to problem solve with us, um, had him arrested. Um, we've come to find out some really concerning things that happened surrounding that also. But uh-huh. what effectively happened, you know, we're, we're educators and parents. And so mm-hmm. we took all technology away and we went through the process of, you know, relearning what's appropriate and setting boundaries, even though that was already in place, you know, we have Mm -hmm. to turn your phones in and you get permission for apps and all the stuff. Um, 
And eventually the counselor that my son was seeing said, you have to give him back some of the technology because he is isolated without it. Mm. Um, which was interesting because it went against my instincts, which was take away the thing that got him in trouble. Uh-huh. Um, and that was scary for us to give it back. Um, yeah. You know, but it is also a part of how kids connect these days. They, they do yeah. use technology to connect. Um, and, you know, as long as we are using it for positive ways, I, I don't, I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we have to figure out how to navigate that in healthy ways, I guess, um, is what I would say about that. Um, You know, we also were dealing with the pandemic um, and the fallout of that and Mm -hmm. the being out of school and only in cohorts that weren't necessarily your friends. And Mm -hmm. that was really detrimental to my son because, um, Another piece of his story is that um, we had a situation with a priest at um, his former school that uh, caused us to have to leave that school suddenly. Mm. And um, so he was kind of in the middle of trying to figure out making new friends mm-hmm. at a new school. And then the pandemic hit. So um, it was kind of a perfect storm of losing connection, I guess. Um and I would say that played a major role in his depression. Well, and then you have what I think a lot of people, unless they're in the mental health field or unless they've walked with somebody that's dealt with this, you don't understand the effect of developmental stages right. on the mind. Right. Teenagers simply don't have the capacity to understand the effects of impulsive actions. Right. You know, they just don't. It's, well, you know. um, I think that can go for poor decision making as well yeah. as the decision to take a life. I, yeah. my husband and I, um, this is not, I know it's a different story than some people, but he had never expressed suicidal ideation or thoughts. Never. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been seeing a counselor for nine months. She assessed him and did not ever express concern for that. Um, you know, there's no way for us to know, mm-hmm. but I, 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 in my heart, feel like it was a bad moment and, and not understanding those long-term effects also affected that decision-making um, yeah. and wanting to escape the pain in that moment can um, override that survival instinct. It can, um, you know, kind of hijack your brain into thinking mm-hmm. this is your only solution. Um you know, of course, I feel like now I know that speaking about it specifically is what we're supposed to do. It does not yeah. plant an idea. It opens up the opportunity for conversation. I wish I had asked him, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Do you want to die? I never said that to him. What I said to him was, there's nothing you can do that can make me not love you. I am mm-hmm. always here for you. You know, I said those things, mm-hmm. but I never kind of went the next step to ask specifics about wanting to die. And um, I wish I had, you know. That's that's something that's really just not talked about. And frankly, I think as a parent, it can be really scary to ask your child that. Sure. You know, Um 
you don't always want to know the answer. No, you, know? you don't. It's, it's frightening. Um, it is. And, and I do know people who um, have children with ongoing suicidal ideation. Uh-huh. And um, I think their pain is the same as mine where my son is gone. It is an ongoing um, fear of your worst nightmare. You know, I don't, I'm not, we don't compare, but is Mm -mm. one better than the other knowing the answer or not knowing the, you know, I don't, they're both devastating. Um, So, yeah. So not only that's part of the problem and, you know, I have some insight because I'm in a master's program for clinical social work and, screening somebody for suicide is always a separate class in and of itself. And Mm. because even at the master's level, it's a scary thing to have. It's something I have to do in my internship all the time. But even if it's not my child, I, you know, your heart races a little when you have to ask somebody that question. Yeah. A lot of times I think the biggest fear, one of the things they teach you is that just asking somebody, have you had suicidal thoughts? Are you thinking about hurting yourself? A lot of people fear that question because they're afraid it's going to put the idea in someone's head. Right. When actually the opposite is true. It's bringing those dark places in their head into the light, which is what has to happen. Yes. But it's terrifying as a parent to hear that answer. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And actually we, um, my husband and I, who is also in education, um, mm-hmm. have made it our mission to actually talk to the teachers at our schools mm-hmm. about this specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have, and I wish I could remember the name of it right now, it's going to come to me later, but we have mandated training at the beginning of every school year, mm-hmm. um, which is signs of suicide and screening for that and watching for it in your students and, and uh, recognizing signs, all of that. Mm-hmm. And our counselor always lets me know, this is the day I'm going to do the presentation. Do you want to be there for it? Is it too much for you? Which is very aware and generous yeah. of her. And this year I said, um, would you like me to talk a little bit about our experience? Um, because I think talking about it in a global sense and then talking about it in a concrete experience kind of way brings it home for some people and not that I want to scare them, but you know, we always say we're kind of people's worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, and if we can make it so that it has to be so that it doesn't have to be anybody else's, we'll we'll do whatever we can to make it not be. Um, so one of the things I did at the beginning of this school year was as part of that signs of suicide presentation at the beginning of the school year, Uh Um, I spoke a little bit about our experience and the way my son's anxiety and depression manifested was that he was a difficult student. Uh He was not compliant. He Uh um, probably was not pleasant to be around. Um, And he always wanted to leave and go to the bathroom. Mm. Um, And he had a teacher that wouldn't let him go. And Mm. I really (laughs) struggled because... I know as a teacher, those kids that, you know, are always trying to escape your class and you're like, oh, for God's sake, you went yesterday at the same time, whatever. Yeah. And so I understood what her hesitation was. And so I had a conversation with her that just, and I was pretty vague because um, what's also hard is we've got these kids who have their own lives 
and their rights to privacy. And so we're trying to respect that while also yeah. advocating. And it's just a really fine line to walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I had said to this teacher was he's had a traumatic experience and is really struggling with staying still and in one spot. Yeah. So um, I had that conversation with her. Um, I don't know what she made of that, but, you know, Aiden kept coming home. She hates me. She won't let me go. So that was one of the things I wanted to talk to other teachers about is that, you know, a a child should never feel like you hate them. You can feel like you're frustrated (laughs) with them. They can feel like, yeah, I really break the rules in there a lot. And I can see, but they shouldn't feel like you hate them. Um, Now, was my son being dramatic? I, I don't know. But, um, you know, we've, it's our job to look for the good and even the most difficult students. So that was one of the points I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And then another one was that um, after my son died, we found a poem in his backpack. And in it, he writes, it seems like it's about a video game. But mm-hmm. as we read it, we recognized that he was camouflaging an actual experience that he had in this poem and talking about his fellow peers laughing at him, which he had a very experience, an experience with that. And then he used the word despair in this poem. And we found this in his backpack, you know, the week after he died. And I was, I was shocked. I'm like, why, where did this come from? When did he write this? So I actually reached out to the school and said, can someone tell me about what, what the assignment was? Mm -hmm. And it um, was for the teacher that he said hated him. (laughs) So (laughs) I reached out to her and I just said, can you, can you tell me a little bit about this? Um, Aiden died in May and they had written these poems in February. Mm. And she said he was really proud of that. And he wanted to read it to the classes. Oh, and I said, well, didn't anyone see fit to tell us about this poem? I didn't know anything about it. And she's like, well, to be honest, it was about the only thing he made any effort on in my class. Oh, and the wind was knocked out of me. And yeah. I thought, that's how he felt in your class. Yeah. Is it her fault? No. Yeah. Were there Was something missed there? Absolutely. Um, so I tell that story to the teachers because we all have hard students. We have kids that, you know, they don't come to school as often as they should. That was another piece that I know they were irritated about. But we had this ongoing legal situation and once a month we had to go to zoom court to ask for a continuance and he would be mm-hmm. sick to his stomach and anxious and couldn't sleep and pacing the house. Mm-hmm. And it was a battle to get him to go to school. And I wish that, you know, I can't tell them that. Well, sorry, he was dealing with this court case with these evil people that come every time and stare him down. I mean, you know, I'm not going to tell them that, but no, it, it was something that they didn't need to know that piece, but I'd said he had a traumatic experience and that needed to be enough. So hearing from our students, you know, between the lines, I think my school does a lot better job at it because we're an urban school with a a large immigrant population and the people who work there recognize the prevalence of trauma in our students. Mm -hmm. But I think that a lot of schools, you know, our typical middle-class, um, not very ethnically diverse schools don't think there's a lot of trauma in those students, but yeah, uh, trauma is a big factor that we're learning more about mm-hmm. and 
that we just have to be cognizant of and working at recognizing and um, making sure we're not blowing off. Because I think I heard it said, you know, what is not traumatic for one person may be completely traumatic for another person. And we have not isolated why, but we have to treat the person who's feeling trauma as if it is trauma. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter yeah. if we can understand why. Um, so I'm, I'm rambling here, but I just think that that trauma piece of it and recognizing educators as a piece of it. Um, I know that, you know, after, after, uh, talking to my staff, I think I've had probably three to four times just this year that I've had staff come to me and say, I'm worried about this kid. Will you talk to them? Or what would you recommend I do? And I feel like that's an honor and a privilege for me to get to do in Aiden's honor. Yeah. Um, to try and help another kid. And that's our goal. That's incredibly brave. And it has to be so hard <laughs> to put all of those feelings aside, but do it in honor of your son. And that's amazing. I, well, we look at each other all the time. Mike, you know, he, he says he deals with kids as a principal. Yeah. And, um, they'll come in actually with very similar situations to what our son went through. And mm -hmm. he thinks about Aiden the whole time. And he says he'll, he'll manage it with as much kindness and grace as he can. And that does not mean not having rules or boundaries, but it right. still means treating people humanly and with, with um, grace and, and gentleness when they need it. Um, mm -hmm. And he says, I'll close the door and I'll cry because I wish that's what someone had done for her, our boy. Um, and so I think we look at our, each other all the time and we just say, we do it because we wish someone had done it for him. And what if someone had? Um, and so it is hard and it's also an honor yeah. um, to get to. And we hope it makes a difference somewhere, you know, even if just to that one kid or to that one family who's reached out because they know we've been very public about what we've been through. And they're like, okay, give us what you know, cause we're now facing a similar situation or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. so yeah. we try. <laughs> and I think you can safely say that you are making a difference. It's, you know, one of my earlier interviews, um, she talked about, you know, I can be having the worst day and I get in on my elevator and I'm crying and then I get down to the bottom and somebody says, hey, I really like your hair today. Like mm -hmm. just a sincere compliment, one little kindness. And all of a sudden she feels better. Yeah. And I don't think people realize how big of a deal those little yep. kindnesses are. And they yep. really do make a difference. And by the same token, little mean things that people say actually right. do make a difference. Those right. are not, those are wounds and people right. don't view them as that, but they need to. You know, I read somewhere that we're all about four uh, situations away from a breakdown or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that sounds a little, a few too many, but um, I thought that's a good rule of thumb to remember. Um, mm -hmm. And you don't want to be that fourth one that sends that person into their breakdown. So we don't know what number anyone else is on. Mm -hmm. And remembering that might help us be a little bit gentler. Um, you know, Aiden did say a really stupid thing on social media. And mm -hmm. I think, um, 
you know, it, it, it could have been a wounding experience for the recipient. Um, but I also think that in those, it, it's how do we recover from those mm-hmm. moments also. Um, and I think I'm trying, <laughs> I read that somewhere, you know, I'm trying to take all these things that I've learned and apply them to my two children that I'm still raising. And what's mm-hmm. gonna, what's your recovery going to be? So you make this mistake, you do this horrible thing, whatever. What's your recovery mm-hmm. plan? And I think yeah. that's part of what um, teaching resilience is to our kids. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it might be coming to you and letting you hold me, mom, because I don't know what to do. Whatever. I don't know. Um, but I think you're right. Those little things make a big difference positively and negatively. And so how do we, how do we keep that balanced as best we can? You know, mm-hmm. I think I am now raising some of the most compassionate kids. You are. Um, <laughs> they're really, really gifted in that area. I wish I could take credit for that, but I, I think some of it is just simple life experience. Mm-hmm. They know what a difference it does make. Um, and so we talk about, you know, my son Connor has a boy in his class that really struggles. And mm-hmm. I said, well, what do you think's going on with him? And he said, well, his parents are getting divorced right now. And so he probably just hurts inside. And I thought well, that was pretty insightful for a 10 year old. So, you know, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. You know, mm-hmm. um, even adults don't recognize that sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, those little positive things and those little negative things do make a difference. One of the things that we do, we promote, and we have stickers and wristbands and things that we use to kind of keep Aiden's memory alive and to connect with his friends is um, a wristband that says, be brave enough to be kind. Um, Cause I mm-hmm. do think sometimes it does take bravery, you know, to stand maybe against the crowd or to do the thing you really don't want to do or um, stick up for someone, whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not, it's really not what you want to do. And we feel like there were many, many moments where, um, people could have been kinder and they just didn't have the bravery to do it. And so, um, you know, it would have, it would have meant getting outside of themselves. It would have meant maybe not taking the most, um, the strongest reaction, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, we also use the term flip the culture, you know, I think we're kind of in a (laughs) cultural crisis right now. There's lots of reasons for that. But um, I don't I don't think that kindness is our knee jerk reaction right now. We're, we're very combative and divided. Mm-hmm. And I think if we could kind of learn to see our similarities more than our differences, that would help this mental health crisis tremendously. Um, and that can be politics. It can be religion. It can be socioeconomics, immigration, it can be sexuality. I mean, there's so many topics that that could apply to Mm -hmm. that I just wish that could become our default. I really think our mental health crisis is in part, obviously there is a biological component, right? There are brains that work differently and there are um, hormones that, that, 
manifest in, in, in our emotions and, and all mm-hmm. of that, you know, way more about that than I do <laughs> um, in your studies. But I think that it's a combination of the internal and the external. And mm-hmm. we may not always be able to control the internal, but I do think we have a lot more control over the external and we just have to get people to buy into that part of it. That's my opinion. <laughs> That's beautifully said. And honestly, like what you're talking about, things we hear about today, like cancel culture. I mean, I don't want to get too yes. broad in this discussion, but yeah, that really worries me as yeah. um, someone who's studying to be a clinician because we're all human. Yeah. And cancel culture assumes that we're all perfect. canceled. I mean, that's, that's the undertone to the whole thing is that you can't make a mistake or you're going to get canceled. That's a terrible message. It's it's horrifying. And I hate that when, when things are pulled out from, you know, these people that we know and love. And then, you know, 20 years ago, they said X, Y, or Z. I'm like, oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, that is why technology scares me. Yeah. Because it is a good thing. No one recorded the things I said 20 years ago. (laughs) I think we all feel that, you know? Yeah. Um, we're not allowed to make mistakes anymore and how terrifying for our teenagers. You yes. cannot make a single mistake. Ugh, Particularly a lot for of teenagers that are just, I mean, their whole job in life um, developmentally is to figure out who they are, yeah. which means that they're going to make mistakes. Right. I mean, that is a natural part of that process and to not allow them yes. mistakes and the forgiveness and the grace that should come with that. It, it has just got to be terrifying for them, honestly. I, I agree. And, you know, I don't know. <laughs> There's a um, parenting philosophy called Love and Logic. Um, mm-hmm. Jim Fay was the um, developer. And there was a period of time where, you know, they talked about love and logic in schools and natural consequences and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, take what you will from that. But I remember this phrase distinctly. And I was raising toddlers at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was a very demanding phase of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember him saying, we want them to make mistakes now so that they um, learn how to, I don't know if he said recover, but they learn how to make mistakes now before the consequences get bigger. You know, yeah. when we're talking about adults who drive drunk or, you know, whatever it is that they're doing, we, we, we want them to make mistakes when they're young right. to learn about how to do that. And, apologize or do better or learn from mm-hmm. it but we're not allowing for that anymore um and that's a problem you know that's a lot of pressure <laughs> it's a lot people. of pressure and it's also how you develop resiliency mm-hmm. is getting through mm-hmm. tough things and learning that you can get through them if you prevent yourself from ever experiencing those because you're so afraid of making a mistake you actually never develop that essential resiliency that essential, everyone yeah yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I'm processing that. I think you're totally right. Um, and I think the other piece of that is um, what, I, what I thought about with Aiden is that, you know, that essential resiliency and to recognize that this is a moment in time. I think that was a big part of Aiden is like, you know, as an adult, I've been through hard things mm-hmm. and I know that there will be another side of that coin. Eventually it may take a really long time or I may never be the same, but there will be, there is something at the end of it. And kids don't have that life experience yet to understand, Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, timing even, you know, like mm -hmm. this bet. I, I know there's a lot of stuff about sextortion right now, mm -hmm. which is another topic, but you know, I, I know several that have led to suicide because, you know, it's like the worst thing in the world in this moment. That's all they can feel is this moment. And they cannot see beyond that because they don't have the life experience to under, they haven't had those opportunities to learn that. And we have to give them those opportunities to feel uncomfortable and come mm -hmm. out on the other side. And I think that is what you're talking about. That part of yeah. essential resilience is, is feeling that and, and then being able to recognize it the next time and be like, oh yeah, I've done this before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So allowing for mistakes is part of that. Mm -hmm. It is honestly, and it, it is an essential part of growing up and, mm -hmm. and it's nothing that you can just teach somebody in a textbook. It is one of those things that has to be lived. Right. To be understood. Right. And, and some kid, we were talking about this the other day. <laughs> some kids are going to take the much harder path to learn that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and, and, you know, and you're like, why, why do you have why? to do this the hard way? We used, to, <laughs> we used to even use that phrase. You want to do this the hard way or the easy way? Mm -hmm. And I, I got one kid that's always going to choose the hard way. <laughs> and I got yeah. another one that's like, no way. I'm watching the one doing it the hard way. I'm going to do it the easy way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's part of growing up in life and who they and their characters and their life experience. And it's this it's it it should be this beautiful time of development. Mm -hmm. And it's become a scary no room for error. Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. And that it's something I talk about, you know, and again, I'm still an intern, um, still <laughs> studying a lot of this. So mm -hmm. caveat. but a lot of times when I'm working with my um, kids in group therapy in the acute care hospital, their eyes get really wide when I say, you know what, a lot of your experiences are superpowers. And they're like, what? what are you talking mm. about? And I'm like, you are going to have a sensitivity that nobody else is going to have. Mm -hmm. Figure out how to handle this because mm -hmm. you were able to see when somebody else is hurting, you know, think about where you were a few, few years ago before you started feeling this way. You yeah. might not have picked up on somebody else, but I bet you can now. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a, an eye opener for them to realize, okay, yeah, this is really yucky, but there's something good that can come out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a great way to put it a superpower. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I do think <sighs> turning our flaws for lack of a better term, I know that's yeah. not right, but <laughs> um, into, into beautiful powers or something that we can use. Like I said, I think I'm raising incredibly compassionate kids now, but yeah. you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not how I wanted them to learn it. I wish, mm -hmm. you know, and I think these kids going through these really hard times are like, oh my gosh, do I have to do this really hard way to learn this superpower? But I, I, I think you're right. I think there's a phrase that says something like, um, my favorite people are the ones who've been through hard times. You know, those are people yeah. who really understand priorities. Those are the ones who understand how to listen, I think. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I really do. I think that there's, I, I've always gravitated towards people that have a story, you know, mm -hmm. mountains are made through, or <laughs> there's some <laughs> mountains are made through collisions of, you know, tectonic plates. I'm sorry, I'm getting big, no, like that, no. but I think that's the point, <laughs> right? Is that yes. it's, 
it's, it's those tough moments that actually create our best characteristics often. Um, and you don't feel that in the moment. No. Um, and that's, that's what kids have to learn that moments are passing moment moments are just that they're moments. They're not, this is not, I think, um, you know, I went through some mindfulness stuff with our kids and one of them is that feelings are passing, you know? Yes. Um, and, and I think that's really important for kids to also remember, cause I have had my own mental health struggles, mm-hmm. um, with anxiety and just guilt and things dealing with Aiden's death and, and other things that we've been through as a family. And, um, I have had those moments that I, I, I compared early grief to childbirth in that the intensity of the pain is like your contractions and you, you feel like you're literally not going to survive and there's no epidural or medicine for grief pain. And I, I, I remember having moments where I thought I, I literally can't survive this. Um, but you get stronger and, and, and you find out you actually can, and that, that you're going to channel that pain somewhere good. At mm-hmm. least that's my goal. Um, and so those feelings are passing and it doesn't mean they're not going to come back, but, um, if we can ride that wave, mm-hmm. learning how to do that is probably part of that essential resiliency also. Yeah. And that's, that's beautiful. And honestly, I think that's the way, if not the only way to walk through something like this is to take that pain and that grief that you're dealing with and find a way to do something positive with it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I honestly don't know. We've had our own struggles with our own child and it, it, that's that, that grief that you're talking about. I mean, I didn't lose my child to suicide, but it's there's it's a grief a, that you can't describe with to anybody else yeah and yeah the way I found my way through is figuring out okay I want to learn as much as I can about this and I want to help people that feel like my daughter yeah and I want to change that narrative because the other thing you brought up that I really struggle with and honestly still struggle with right mm-hmm. now is that people don't realize that mental health actually affects the family around that person. And that, you know, along with this grieving for this child, you're grieving yourself. Um, There's a lot of mom guilt, whether anybody puts that on you or not. It's like, what could I have done differently? And that's a very real psychological pain. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much support a family actually needs. (laughs) I think you're right. And I, you know, I was thinking about that when you said what you're doing is learning about it and learning how to be with, help other kids. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a shortage too, is that people who, people who are strong enough to sit next to people in their pain, I think Mm -hmm. that's really uncomfortable. Yeah. And so we pretty it up for everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's, it's, it's overwhelming for people to be around us, I think sometimes, yeah. but that doesn't help with healing when you put on a mask. And so people no. like you who are training to be with it as uncomfortable as it is, um, mm-hmm. 
it, that's a gift. That's a, to the, you know, I, I have my handful of people that I know, like if I'm having a really tough day, I can reach out to this person and they can handle the depth of my emotion. Yeah. And there aren't that many. They can. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I have a friend and she uses this phrase because, you know, you also want to feel like, um, you want to be able to feel normal sometimes yeah. too. Um, yeah. and so we're the people that lost our kid and we walk in places and I see it on people's faces like, Oh, there's those people. And sometimes you just want to walk in and just be the Riley's like, yeah. nobody, you know, <laughs> um, and it's hard to be that, but I have a friend, um, and we we've known each other for years and years and she'll call me sometimes and she'll have, you know, a kid issue or a, or a husband issue. And she'll say, okay, I have a vent, but do you have the capacity to listen to it today? And I mm-hmm. thought, what a, what a powerful statement yeah, for her to make is like, I want to treat you like you're my normal friend. And I just got to make sure that you have the emotional wherewithal to handle it. And, and almost always my answer is yes, I'm here. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to, I want to help you too. Like you help me. That makes yeah. me feel good to be able to be there for you. Like you have been for me. And mm-hmm. so sometimes for me sitting with someone else in that pain is actually healing for me. Um, <laughs> but I think we are trained to fear pain and hard emotions. Um, you know, we're, we're a comfort society where you get out mm-hmm. of the discomfort as quickly as possible. Um, and that, that has its own mental health repercussions, right? I think that that's what leads to a lot of, I don't know, addictions or unhealthy patterns and things like that, because we can't handle sitting with those hard emotions. Um, and then that's scary for those people experiencing them Mm -hmm. because they feel like they're too much. They feel like they can't find someone to be with them in that moment. Yeah. I hear that a lot with, you know, kids that I work with in that, you know, they, it's a hard realization when you're going through something tough, realizing that there are friends that you can talk to and there are friends that you will never be able to tell them yeah. to. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough lesson to learn early on. Yeah. Right. And I get, um, we have a program here. Um, and it, I, I think I used this earlier. I called it signs of suicide at my school, but that's not what it was, but there is an actual program called signs of suicide and mm-hmm. it's peer, um, interventions. And mm-hmm. so we have a foundation that's funding training peer interventionists at the high schools to be recognized people um, who their peers can come to if they're struggling, you know, because I do think that's another piece of it that mm-hmm. young people are sometimes more likely to go to their peers than like their parents mm-hmm. or adults. They yeah. feel better understood. And so if there is someone their age who that's a lot to put on a young person to say, okay, but I, I think if, if those young people are trying to ask those hard questions, are you having suicidal thoughts? Um, and then knowing who to go to, um, mm-hmm. that could be a really powerful intervention plan for young people who may not talk to an adult. I, I don't know. But, you know, obviously that has to, that has pros and cons. Um, yeah. But I do like the idea of just peer 
people who are mm-hmm. available to help. I think that that's because that's the other thing that's happening, right? It's supposed to. Kids are supposed to grow up. They're supposed to expand their bubbles and branch out and spread their wings and all that stuff. But what mm-hmm. happens then as parents is we have less control over who yeah. and what they're interacting with. And um, that can be scary, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, depending on what that child's like and 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 if we think they're struggling, you know, do they have people that we feel confident are positive influences for them to be around? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have two different kids that, well, I have three totally different kids, but, you know, I have two mm-hmm. who've been teenagers and one would choose probably the negative influence crowd and the other one would steer completely clear of that. And it's just who they are. Um, right. But knowing that there are kids out there, you know, um, that would reach out and say, all right, dude, I, I see you doing this and that's a bad deal and you need to straighten up or I'm going to have to talk to your mom or whatever it is. I don't yeah. know. But knowing that, that peer or giving peer, giving young people the power to reach out to their peers in a way like that, I think could be a possible intervention. If that makes, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm rambling. I, I think honestly, <laughs> the more information that's, that kind of circles back to the, topic you know that we started with is Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of not only a dearth of information but there's a lot of misinformation out there about how to handle mental health and how to support people that are dealing with a mental health crisis and how to support the people around them yes and the more we try to hide from it this is my personal opinion yeah the more it creates those misinformation spaces yeah and the more we can educate people that this is not, yeah, it's a tough topic, but it doesn't have to be scary to the point that we don't talk about it because yes. that's where the problems come in. Right. Right. You know, you're, you're actually bringing, bringing those thoughts to light helps dissipate them. And that's mm-hmm. been shown time and again in studies. I mean, that's essentially what therapy is based on mm-hmm. when we're afraid to talk about the things that we notice or the things that are uncomfortable, that they can get much, much bigger in our heads. Right. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I, I think that's part of why we decided to speak pretty openly almost immediately Mm -hmm. is that I think sometimes the made up information is, is worse than the truth. Yeah. Um, And so if we can share that truth, whatever that is, then mm-hmm. it takes the power out of those scary hidden thoughts. Um, I think that bringing it into the light is a good analogy too. Um, and I think about that a lot with my son, Aiden, um, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, you know, different people have different thoughts about it, but uh, you want to believe that their spirit is there somewhere. And so we look for signs and we, hope yeah. that they're okay. And I know that's a totally different track than, than, than talking about um, scientific studies and things like that. But um, mm-hmm. we, we always feel like Aiden is present in beautiful sunsets. And I have this realization that it's the light he's bringing light. He, he mm-hmm. was light in our life and he's continuing to be light um, mm-hmm. through those signs. And he's also helping us shine a light. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think that, that vision of bringing things into the light is really important 
um, there things often aren't as scary in the light than they, as they are in the dark, right? Like you were saying. So, um, I think that continues to be important, right? Right. Well, thank you for all of this. I, I know this is hard to talk about and I mean, I can't tell you how much I admire all of the good work that you've done in the middle of all of this well, stuff. And you've chosen to be a light for others. And that's, that's a bravery that not many people have. Well, thank you. I, you're, you're being too generous with your compliments. Um, I think you as a mother understand it's what we do because we love our kids. Um, yeah. And it doesn't even really feel like a choice. It feels like it's what's got to be done. So we do it. Um, and I just admire you being willing to embrace some hard topics and talk about them and bring them into the light because um, that's the only way it's going to get better. That's the only way we can do better and be better. Um, so thank you for, I rambled a lot. I talked about it, kind of went all over the place. It was good. But uh, I hope, you know, the topics are meaningful and, and, and hopefully again, continue to shine that light and bring some good. Yeah, that's, that's my hope too, is that, you know, giving a forum to these types of topics might help somebody else. So thank right. you for all no. of them. Thank you for taking time and interviewing me with my somewhat froggy voice that's still here, but it's getting better. <laughs> 